Every once in a while I talk to someone, an adult, that reports they've never been to a funeral, ever. How can this be, I protest? It's categorically unfair, as death has been a regular part of my life since I was a child, since like forever. For one thing, my brothers and I were seasoned altar servers. Our pastor called on us regularly for funerals because there were three of us and we were a package deal. If one came, three came, he was up on the server count. And we came a lot because my mother was a professional mourner. I realized that she would always, the smaller the crowd, the more she would cry because no one was there to mourn. And she always reminded us that burying the dead was a corporal work of mercy. Let somebody else be merciful, I would say, under my breath, so as not to end up in the funeral home as a client myself, if you know what I mean. Not only did she attend funerals, my mother also chaired the funeral dinner committee, and we were slaves to her ministry, setting up tables constantly, washing dishes, There was no end to our grief as children. Maybe I'm a little dramatic. In addition, my grandfather was one of 14 children. When you add their spouses and my grandparents, that's 28 old people on one side of my family alone. And one by one, when I was in grade school, they started cashing in their chips, as my grandfather used to say. 28 funerals in total. It seemed like we lived at the funeral home, a giant, creepy old Victorian that had been converted into a funeral home. They've since left that location, and that vacant funeral is a perfectly creepy haunted house without even trying. There wasn't a a thing that I liked about funerals. I had to wear hot, sticky suits, shirts, and ties. There was long adult conversations that left us agonizingly bored. There were creepy caskets and awkward hugs from great aunts I hardly knew. Lots of tears of loss and so on. Yes, early on, I realized that death is not a good experience. So when the author of the Book of Wisdom writes about death, he affirms that God is not responsible for death entering into the world. Satan tempted our first parents, and they rebelled against God, and death was the consequence of the loss of sanctifying grace. Yes, God created us to be incorruptible, but man threw that precious gift away. So we get old, and we get feeble, and we die. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Jesus, however, got the last word. By his death and resurrection, he enables us to be raised to new life. And we see two vivid examples of his power to defeat corruption in our gospel today. They are signs to us of the reason for our hope as Christians, most especially for eternal life, as every miracle points to an eternal or a spiritual explanation, as Jesus has power over suffering and most especially of death. The first crisis that Jesus comes upon is a a desperately grieving father. Jairus was the leader of the Jewish synagogue, probably in Capernaum. He was desperate over the probable death of his little girl. What could be worse? My mother would have been crying furiously. Jesus was the most likely a last-ditch effort. 
there is a second drama unfolding within the first, and it too features resurrection. The hemorrhaging woman heard about Jesus and his healing powers, and combined with his extraordinary compassion for the suffering, the poor, and the weak, what did she have to lose? For this woman had all of these problems. First, she suffered a hemorrhage, probably from her reproductive organs, likely making her unable to experience the joy of children, and thus, in biblical times, seen as cursed. And a perpetual hemorrhage made her ritually unclean, disqualifying her from praying in the synagogue ever. And it's probably the same synagogue that Jairus led. Second, she was impoverished from from paying physicians. With their primitive knowledge, their treatments were rarely successful and sometimes worse than the diseases themselves. And finally, from her poverty, which limited her diet, combined with her constant loss of blood, she was certainly anemic and considerably weakened. Again, Jesus was her only hope. So the woman manages to get close to Jesus in the throng of people that were walking along with him, hoping that Jesus would extend his mercy to the most lowly of the lowly. She touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and she was instantaneously healed of her affliction. I've often wondered if she felt a shocking surge of healing energy in her broken body. And in the chaos of the crowd, Jesus inquires, who touched me? So early on, his disciples were probably still learning the ways of the master. Scriptural evidence shows that they were sort of like apostolic bouncers, if you will, in charge of managing the crowds, and they sound annoyed by the question, you've got to be kidding me. Who touched you? You're surrounded by people pressing in on you, and yet you ask, who touched you? But the woman who had been healed had no delusion. She knew the touch of which Jesus was referring, the divine power that had healed her disease, and she fell down before him and gave witness and gave thanks. And the cure was made complete when Jesus, who had already healed her body, also healed her mind and her heart by telling her to go in peace. I mean, think about it. Her life, when she rose from sleep that morning, looked to be over. For all practical purposes, she was dead. But now she was alive, resurrected. But it was only a foretaste, a foretaste of what would come after the death and resurrection of the Lord, of which St. Mark was trying to lead us. The story of Jairus and his daughter picks up from that point. People who had been attending the girl came with the tragic news of her death. And Jesus turned to the distraught father and says something that we should keep in mind as we grieve on this earth. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Great advice for any grieving person. Far far more comforting than your daughter is dead. Jesus, the very Son of God, is the one spoken about in our first reading today from the Book of Wisdom. He is the ultimate enemy of sin and death. So do not fear, only believe. 
Jesus leads the grieving father with a handful of his disciples to Jairus' house. And there's a commotion much like we'd see at a funeral home. And when Jesus said that the child wasn't dead, they ridicule him. They laugh at him. The story is awesome in its effect. No sign of life from the little girl who was lying on her bed. And Jesus simply lifts her hand and says, Little girl, I say to you, rise up. The healing, again, is instantaneous and the restoration complete, prompting the awe of the parents and his disciples. Jesus asks two things. Don't tell anyone. It's what's called the messianic secret. And give this girl something to eat. That's one of my favorite scripture passages. Eat, eat, right? As St. Paul teaches today, This is an example of how Jesus poured out his riches to the impoverished and to the suffering. He became poor, even dying the death of a slave, so that we might share eternal life that is forecasted by the miraculous. Mark began his gospel with a clear objective, to show that Jesus Christ was and is the eternal Son of God. All the stories of the gospel point to that reality. And the climax of that story will be Jesus' death and his resurrection. But his death in particular when the centurion sees and exclaims, surely this is the Son of God. These healings are what lawyers would call corroborating evidence. They tell us again that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Of God.